Welcome to this month's Expert Insights Forum, where we discuss perinatal mental health, a family matter, recorded in front of a live audience on the 31st of May, 2017. On the panel, we have Professor Marie Paul Austin, Acting Director of Perinatal Psychiatry at the Royal Hospital for Women. Dr. Richard Fletcher, Associate Professor at Family Action Centre, University of Newcastle. Linda Hayes Cameron, Clinical Psychologist and Parent-Infant Therapist. And Athena, our Lived Experience Representative. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. So to start with, Marie Paul, I might ask you to start and maybe tell us just kind of in broad terms of what what do we know about the mental health journey of women in the perinatal period? Yeah, so um, I'm really pleased that Athena has that particular experience around anxiety and depression because it's really a point I wanted to make tonight. And there's some just hot off the press um, information about that. So if you're just looking at the figures, you know, in terms of pregnancy and the first year after birth is what we kind of generally define as the perinatal period in the mental health setting. Um, And the idea being that if you're thinking perinatally, you're thinking early intervention prevention rather than waiting for the baby to be born and suddenly everything goes wrong. That's actually not necessarily what happens. So um, we're finding that anxiety disorders diagnosis, 15% of women in pregnancy. That's just come out in the BMJ this month. So 15%. Now, we, we knew it was there, but it's really quite high. And it's about 10% diagnosis uh, in the first few months after birth. Um, For depression, major depression, it's the reverse, same figures, reverse. So about 10% in pregnancy and about 15% in the first few months uh, after birth. I think the other really important point that you made, which exemplifies what I was going to say, is that for many, many women, um, it's not identified for at least the first year, even the second year. So, you know, it doesn't just kind of stop after six months after birth. It actually goes on, mostly undetected, like about 70 80% of women are not detected, so it's massive. Um, and then, of course, just c- continues because many of these conditions are, are not self-limiting. The natural history is one or two years, and then there's another stressor, maybe another baby. It happens again, and then maybe they're picked up at that point. So... I think that the other point to make there is that detection is not great. And that's been really what I've kind of gotten into in the end is trying to bring that to people's minds, trying to educate them. Great organisations like Black Dog, Beyond Blue, um, COPE. And what we also found in Australia was that whilst I think we've got it pretty well worked out for the public um, women birthing in the public system, they are now routinely getting that assessment. But remember, a third of women birth in the private. And when we realised that, we then decided we should develop um, a tool so that women could self-assess, um, and that's the little blue card that I left on the table called Mum Matters, M-U-M-M-A-T-T-E-R-S. Um, we developed that in conjunction with um, St John of God Healthcare, who fund the chair that I have at the uni, um, and Bupa. Um, so it's free um, there's no commercial interest for either of those organisations. They just are committed to improving the health of women. Women can self-assess. Um, so even if they're not having that assessment and they're seeing a private obstetrician, then they get some feedback about where they stand on that spectrum. 
I guess the only other thing to mention in terms of diagnosis is purple psychosis or postnatal maybe psychosis is another term for purple. It's old-fashioned nowadays. And it's very uncommon, like one in a thousand. But if it happens, it tends to happen very soon after birth, quite florid, um, and that's a very dangerous period for the mum and the baby. Um, so in that first month, that's when you're, you're going to see it if you're working in the field, you know. Um, and I guess finally to say that bipolar disorder is at very much great increased risk in that first month or two or even six months, just as we see purple psychosis. They sometimes present many months later. Um, and that's going to be a much increased risk for a lady who's got bipolar disorder, often comes off her medication, as they do, without necessarily discussing it. Or if they do, you know, I think the clinicians often don't realise what the risk is, um, and then they relapse. So that's, that's really the important thing, is that for many of these conditions, yes, they come on in the first few weeks after birth, but they can go on well down the track. And so, Richard, I might then ask you, um, what are some of the common issues that face men in the perinatal period or fathers in the perinatal period? Well, I think following from what Marie Paul said, you can see that there's two groups of men. There's the men who have mood disorder or depression and anxiety themselves, and we think that's about 10%. Uh, but there's all the partners of those women who have uh, the depression or anxiety. They are also in strife. Uh, and the ones that we talk to certainly feel that there is nowhere to go. Uh, they're not sure what's happening often when we run those groups for dads, when the mums come in for postnatal depression. Um, they are very clear that they're there to come in while she gets fixed up. And their own idea of themselves and their own needs uh, doesn't really come into the picture for them often as well as the services that are around, if you think about it. Uh, there are no services, really, designated for postnatal depression or antenatal depression with fathers. So they correctly perceive there's not much use identifying. So the, the rates are lower than the mothers, and I think that's important to keep in mind. It's not as if there is equivalence here, but the numbers are quite great. So 15% have uh, anxiety before the birth, and that's 15% of... Their partners are wondering what's going on. And, and so, Linda, you know, obviously a lot of your work is that parent-infant work that you do. Um, can you help us understand, first of all, we know that um, infants need a lot from parents for their emotional development in that, those first few months of life. Can you tell us a bit about that and then how mental health perhaps could impact on parents being able to um, deliver, I guess, some of what the infants are needing? It's important in the first three months that infants are um, nurtured, picked up when they send signals to their mother that they have a need. Um, and when this happens, it sets up in the baby in the first three months that there is this contingency pattern that occurs. And that's why you will probably hear mums say, it took me three months to really get to know my baby and to know like that cry means he's hungry. That cry means she's tired. So that's because they've actually connected quite nicely together with their, their um, signals. Um, and so the infant's needs are met um, adequately and there's that contingency that just flows quite nicely. That moving or regulation of that baby's emotion from a high state of arousal to a calm 
um, a calm state is um, essential in the first three months. If you have a mum with a more type A, which is more of a controlling pattern, um, you can see quite a few presentations. There's about three different presentations that these mums can have, where they'll, um, and especially if they have depression and anxiety, it just heightens their reaction to their infants. So what happens is you can have um, a series of types of mums that will come in and respond very quickly to the baby, but they're more harsh and firm with their voice and their uh, touch with the infant, um, which sets up a difficult reaction with the infant. There's not that cause and effect. They actually escalate together um, with their intensity of a negative affect. Um, You can have um, a type A mum who's quite controlling coming in um, and well, even just deciding that she's not going to respond to the baby at all, that this baby needs to learn to, you know, deal with things themselves and sort their their own problems and sleep out. Um, So the baby ends up learning to um, calm themselves down. They pretty much realise that no-one's coming to my needs, so I need to deal with it myself. And it usually ends in sleep for this infant or escalating in their crying and persistently having problems with feeding and sleep um, issues. Um, but most, most of the time these infants just prefer to um, fall asleep because being awake is and, and showing a negative response or, um, to the mother will just elicit negative or nothing coming from the caregiver. Um, and with a type C um, pattern of attachment with them where a mum is a little bit more unresponsive, So where she's unresponsive, she will respond to the child or the infant um, when the infant signals, but there's a lot of inconsistency. Sometimes she'll go, sometimes she'll leave it for long periods of time. Other times there'll be inconsistency with whether she does actually um, attend to the signalling at all from the infant, or she may attend to the infant when the infant isn't signalling, and that might be an example of um, a mum with... Um, OCD, for instance, who's going in constantly checking her baby and waking her baby up and making sure the baby's breathing and um, attending to the baby um, when she doesn't need to. Um, so there's this miscuing quite often with the unresponsive. Um, so that contingency of a cause and effect doesn't really occur. A mum with depression and anxiety um, will just... Uh, have a lot more difficulty focusing on what the infant's needs are because they're so turned into what's going on for themselves. Thank you for that. And um, so just going on from the perinatal time is a time often where there's a lot going on for people and often a lot of stressors combine to eventually tip people into anxiety and depression. I'm interested, Athena, in your journey, what do you think were some of the stressors that really contributed to your own anxiety and depression? Oh, it's kind of long and convoluted, so I'll try and keep it short for you. Um, I think mine pretty much started... I experienced seven years of infertility, um, and that was unexplained infertility. So if I had an actual diagnosis that could fix it, then everything probably would have been all right. So you go through seven years of trying to have a child... Um, went through all the procedures that you can think of from IVF to IUI. I even tried Chinese herbs, um, you name it, I tried it. Um, 
And I also uh, ended up having uh, chemical pregnancies as a result and then miscarriages as a result as well. Finally, I fell pregnant with my son. Um, and I could probably relate quite a lot to the type C that you're describing when the anxiety when my son was born. My son, I was constantly making sure that he was breathing because when you go through all these years of infertility, when you watch all your family, your cousins, you know, younger siblings and in-laws all having not one or two, maybe three children, here I am. Um, grieving a miscarriage or something like that. So when I finally had my son, it was that helicopter stuff. I was constantly checking on him. You know, even that heartbeat mat under the bed, right next to me in the bed, um, in his little bassinet. My husband luckily liked his sleep, so we didn't have him in our bed. Um, So, yeah, I could relate quite a lot to that. Um, And I still am like that in some sense. He's now seven. But during my pregnancy itself, uh, because I experienced that infertility, I I believe that I experienced some kind of PTSD as a result. Um, So my pregnancy wasn't like, you know, any other normal woman who would be glowing and be happy and be looking forward to it and do the whole spring clean of the house and buy the furniture and the toys and all that. For me, it was every single day of I'm going to have a miscarriage, um, you know, what's this mucus coming out of me, it's not normal, that continuous hypochondriac, going to the GP, fix it, what's going on, I don't know what's going on. So I wasn't enjoying my pregnancy. Next thing you know, I gave birth um, and again, um, you know, I thought something was going to happen, you know, so I didn't even have a birth plan, it was basically just getting out of me alive. It wasn't until my son was two that I actually got diagnosed, I ended up in the PEC ward, um, and basically, that's the psychiatric emergency care centre at the hospital, um, and that got to the point where um, my episode really kicked in. Um, wasn't eating; they had to put me on the drip just to keep me alive. Um, my, my history with GPs isn't isn't very positive. Um, I think they probably could have intervened. Someone mentioned intervention before. Probably at the stage of the infertility stage when I was trying to have a baby, and again while I did fall pregnant that intervention could have happened there and maybe right after the birth as well and then I went back to work when he was six months old and that heightened attachment you know having to travel in the train with him to take him to my parents place to to babysit I was having panic attacks on the train Um, you know all those interventions could have been there for me they weren't until I had that major episode and it wasn't until I was in the hospital that I actually got some kind of care. And so, Richard, I just want to check with you. So traditionally we've always kind of looked at mothers as, you know, responsible for the emotional development of, of infants, children. Where do fathers fit in with that? I think the research is <clears throat> rather recent, like last decade or so, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but it's shifted quite dramatically in that time. So that the picture of the babies. Uh, emotional development, uh, social development being contingent on the mother. And if the father just brings in the money and doesn't drink too much, he's doing okay. That model really, we've passed that model now. So that uh, the Longitudinal Study of Australian Children you might be familiar with, 5,000 children. Uh, When we did the analysis of fathers who had symptoms of depression in the first year, that cohort 
their children at preschool had three times as many behaviour problems as the children of the dads who didn't have uh, symptoms of depression in the first year. And that's been replicated in a number of studies now. At seven years, those children, the UK data says that those children will have twice the rate of psychiatric diagnosis uh, of children whose fathers were not uh, symptomatic in the first year. And that's irrespective of the, uh, the mother, uh, social class, income, things like that. So this, this is sort of what we've known about mothers for a long time, that if mothers are struggling uh, to interact in the way that you're describing, uh, then that has developmental consequences. Well, fathers also, even though they go back to work after two weeks, uh, they're not there all the time. The other way that we understand that effect is happening too is by the father's effect on the mother's uh, mothering, so that his uh, co-parenting with her is one of the factors in her relationship with the baby. And if that's not happening, well, that makes it harder for her to have that uh, optimal interactions. So fathers are in the picture now, uh, the research says. Uh, They're definitely part of the picture of uh, emotional and social well-being uh, for if we want optimal development for our uh, children. I think it's really important that we do have um, dads in the room um, with mums when we're talking about how they're managing um, particular behaviours with their infants or even just talking about being parents um, so that we can sort of tease out, you know, the differences and see if we can get some sort of um, balance um, or consistency in some of their views. I will always have a couple session um, if I've got a mother, there's always going to be at least one couple session um, and I will offer a session for the dad to come in. Um, whether he uses one of her sessions, at least he's, he has an opportunity to be heard as well. Um, they can help regulate the mothers when they're on board and mum is actually feeling that she's validated and she's heard in her own experiences and difficulties and he's stepping up and saying that he wants to do something and take on... Um, you know, another style or do something different within the relationship, then, yeah, it just starts to blossom, yeah. Could I just add something? In terms of um, the attachment styles that mothers and fathers have with their infant and what we find it's a transgenerational thing, in fact, so if you've got an attachment style A in mum or C in mum, and they've done the studies in, in mothers and infants. They haven't done that yet in fathers, as far as I know. Um, it tends to be that that um, offspring will have a similar style of attachment. Um, coming from a more severe perspective, you know, the psychiatric one, what we see a sub- substantial minority of women is that next level of attachment difficulty, what's called the D, D style, the disorganised style, so a very severe Uh, very much an insecure attachment as opposed to secure with some issues, maybe A or C, where B, by the way, is meant to be the the norm in about 60% of the population, whatever that means. But so insecure, type D, disorganised attachment style, um, we're finding that that is more likely to occur with what we have uh, in that minority of women, but significant enough that they they really get into distress is um, 
emotional dysregulation. I, I guess you've probably all heard that term now. It's increasingly used in, in the attachment field and, and also within psychiatry, which we've really tried to promote um, because it's in, on a spectrum for borderline personality disorder and those mums just fall apart, okay? Pregnancy or postnatal, the, um, the challenge of being responsible for someone else's emotional well-being... Uh, when they themselves haven't been held securely by their own key primary caregiver, whoever that might be. You know, it could be a father who can be equally as or more important and balance out a mother who just can't do that for the child. So, you know, that containing that you talked about, Linda, by the father can be incredibly important. But those, those mothers, they're coming in there with a, a massive kind of... They're behind the eight ball. And we see them all the time in the pregnancy clinics where I work um, here, antenatal clinics. And they are a real issue in their own right. And they're going to need a lot of infant uh, parent work and also a lot of, um, of their own attachment work. Often DBT can be useful in terms of containing the emotional dysregulation. And then they can go and do that more in-depth psychotherapeutic and parent-infant work. So for those mums, there's, there's a kind of quite a long journey yeah my question is for athena do you think that you were always an anxious warrior and that that then predisposed you to depression and anxiety perinatally so all this mental health stuff in my life happened as a middle-aged woman so i'm now 44 um i had my son at 36 um and the infertility started 29, 30. So before that, I was a happy-go-lucky Greek-Australian girl in the suburbs. You know, I ended up with a, a lovely man, lovely relationship. Never had any problems up until those infertility years started, where I really started to get that kind of anxiety. I, I remember the, my first ever panic attack, and that was around that 32 years old. Um, and that probably, I think it was after a chemical pregnancy that I had. We often talk about the impact of fathers supporting mothers through mental illness. Should we also be talking about mothers who are supporting fathers through mental illness? I usually see the women in the first 12 months. Um, I'll see them any time they present. Um, but what, I, what tends to happen is when the mums are getting better, they're back to work, 12 months of babies around 10 to 12 months, they're feeling a lot better, then they'll say to me, I'm really worried about my husband. Because all of a sudden he's dropped the load. He's been holding up. He's been so strong, doing everything, supporting her as much as he can um, and, and just getting through, really. And then all of a sudden, when she's OK, he just drops the load. So that's, that's been the practice, what I've been seeing. Um, so then it's the other turns around where the wife is actually calling in to try and get some support for her husband. I think the other thing is um, I can't overemphasise how much, and Linda does that in her practice, how much you want to meet the other, the significant other. And it could be a man or a woman, by the way. Um, you know, it's the partner, the other parent. Um, because you get good at eyeballing them and getting a feel for where they're coming from. What are their concerns, you know? Their interaction between the two, you get a, a pretty quick in kind of in vivo sense of the 
dynamic, the relationship, who's doing what bits. You know, sometimes it's the, the father who's doing everything with the baby, which gives me a lot of information about how the mother must be going. So it's just essential. And um, the other th- thing that's essential is getting the baby in. So people often say, oh, I'll just come by myself. I'll get the baby babysat. No, that's okay. Maybe the first time, but then want to meet the baby. You know, they're the other person to get to know and see where they're going. Do you have any good tips to help us engage with dads? Well, I think the first thing is to uh, count. Uh, I think it sounds banal and administrative, but... When we go to a service and we say, do you get dads involved here? And they go, oh, yeah. And we say, how many? How does it happen? If they can't answer that question, then we know they're probably not doing very well. We work with a lot of services and they often start by saying, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they people like yourselves who have probably good relationships with your own fathers or know of good fathers. So it's not a hard sell. And the, the organisation will go, yeah, yeah, we can do that. That won't be too hard. Um, we'll just shift around a bit and it'll happen. And it never happens like that. It is a, it is a big shift for matrifocal services to shift to include fathers. And it involves a lot of things that aren't obvious when you start. Uh, so that's why we sort of start slowly by seeing how they are now. Would it also be that you have to tell them just how important they are. I mean, just at a one-on-one in, in a clinical setting and they're an essential part of the team and they can't be done without them. So inclusion and making them feel important because they actually are, especially in this day and age where we don't have extended family support, it's very much reliant. It's so, it's so stressful for these couples because it's reliant on one and the other. And if they're both not well, in fact, that's even harder. And you need to know if they're not both well. Yeah, Athena, was your husband ever invited in? Did he know something was wrong? Like, how did it go for you guys? Yeah, um, yeah my, my husband's a t- the typical traditional alpha male. So, you know, he went to work and he provided for the family and... Um, he had a very independent, confident wife who fell apart in front of him and he didn't know what to do. Um, and it was uh, during the time that I was in PEC that the, the psychologist and the psychiatrist um, basically sat him down and said, you need to be present uh, because for Athena to get better, to come out and go back to being that woman that she was, you need to be present. So whether it is doing the menial tasks at home, um, you know, obviously looking after our son, but acknowledging what I was going through um, and just being there and being supportive. Not that he wasn't supportive, but just taking that little bit of extra step so that way I could get through without having to worry about what he was going through as well. Um, you know, he, he grew up uh, with, a, with a mother who had... Um, psychiatric illness. So for him, when to see me go through that, it was a trigger. And oh no, I'm going to now I've got my wife's like this. Uh, but it was putting it all together and seeing it from my perspective. I'm not your mother. I'm not going through what she did. Um, and for him, you know, he had to learn all this stuff. Um, and he was my my number one supporter. So if it wasn't for him, um, it would have been a really difficult experience for me, and it probably would still be prolonged. My illness, yeah. Uh, I was wondering if there's any difference for same-sex couples when they become parents in comparison to heterosexual couples. 
in my experience, I haven't seen any difference there. Transgenerational patterns are still there and you'll still see the same um, difficulties and interactional, interpersonal relationship problems. And um, in terms of caring for the children, I, I tend to see the same thing happening as in a heterosexual relationship. And maybe that's a good time to mention the, the importance of assessing for psychosocial risk factors, which is something that we've really introduced um, in Australia. In addition to you know, doing an Edinburgh Depression Scale or a DAS, D-A-S-S, um, because it just gives you that context, that richness in, in a very short space of time. You know? So what kind of um, <clears throat> emotional support did they have when they were growing up, giving us an idea of where they're coming from in their head in terms of the type of parenting they might have had. Have they been exposed to trauma as they were growing up? Um, what are their personality styles? You know, and that's, I think something that that's, you mentioned before about you know, pre-existing high-tray anxiety um, is so important and we see it very often coming to the fore um, or perfectionism. But also um, the, any current stressors or recent stressors, any substance use, any family violence um, and medical issues. So you want to kind of get the bigger picture and back to the question around gender, I think it's much more around that than uh, gender in its own right, in this particular case, yeah, around parenting. It's the quality of parenting they had themselves will have a lot to do with how they manage that massive transition from being someone's child to someone's parent. And that's one of the biggest ones we, we all have to do developmentally. Um, and if one partner's got some resilience and strength, which is what we're looking at in that area, and the other one doesn't, then you're hoping that they'll support each other. Women often stop their medications when they discover they are pregnant, putting themselves at increased risk of relapse. How do you decide when it's best for a woman to continue taking her psychotropic medication, even when she's pregnant? Yeah, that's a really big one. I think that's what most GPs that I ever talk to or with, you know, that's their big kind of concern. Um, so there's, there's a really rapidly evolving literature in this area around, say, SSRIs, you know, the, the standard antidepressant and anti-anxiety drugs. So just as, as, as much anxiety disorder out there, SSRIs are probably equally useful for both, which is kind of nice, but, you know, we need to have much more sort of refined targeted drugs and that's the aim in the long term. So if I just started with SSRIs and I just ran you through it, exposure in pregnancy, so the three things you look at is birth defects, first trimester exposure, is there a risk with SSRIs? The bottom line is no. I mean, we've now got about 25,000 um, reported, documented articles written on about 25,000 <coughs> exposures um, and there doesn't seem to be an increased risk above the general population risk, which is 3% for any woman, no exposure to anything un untoward. That's the risk for a major abnormality. Uh, does it increase with SSRI exposure in first trimester? No. There are some subtle differences maybe, but, you know, that's, that's the big one. Um, there isn't in, the, in, the big, in that class of drugs. Um, in terms of... Uh, at birth outcomes, you know, is there some risk of prematurity or uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome, um, 
irritable baby, so on and so forth. Yes, there's, there's an increased risk of neonatal abstinence, but it's not life-threatening. It lasts for a few days and it's self-limiting and it goes. So that's good. Um, the other thing is, is it increased uh, risk of, say, prematurity or low birth weight? If it is, it's tiny. And I'll give you the example. If an average baby nowadays is 3.5 kilo, and they get bigger every decade, uh, you're talking about 75 gram difference between one exposed group and the other. So that's in that, you know, context, it's not, not an issue. The big marker is to look out for is in the use of anticonvulsant epilim, also known as sodium valproate. So that's the one that's actually in the guidelines we've now added and said, do not use it in women of childbearing age unless there's really no other way around it. And that's the same in the UK. Their guidelines say the same thing. Because for two reasons, A, it is associated with increased risk of birth defects, that's for sure, and and particularly nasty ones, neural tube defects. Um, And that's about maybe 8, 10, up to 12, 15%. So that's massively above, right? And secondly, it is associated with uh, a reduced... IQ score, whatever that means, okay, but it's it's a significant of one standard deviation. So if your average IQ is 100, you're talking about 10 points below the average. Uh, lithium had the big kind of deal to it, you know, it was reported in the 70s to be associated with increased heart defect and so forth. They went and reanalyzed the data, nothing near what was the concern. To start with, it's an uncommon heart defect. It's not your average heart defect which is actually eminently uh, kind of treatable and self-resolving. But this is a very unusual one, and it's just not seen to be the case now. But if you're talking about one in 20,000, it's maybe with <coughs> lithium, inc- you know, increased risk of maybe one in 2,000. So tenfold increase, relatively speaking. But the absolute risk, and this is the other thing that's difficult to explain to people, the absolute risk is still one in 2,000, which is pretty uncommon. But how do you make the decision? Coming back to your question, you can see it's it's a number of factors that have to be taken into consideration. Because the other thing is, if the developing fetus is exposed to untreated maternal illness, that's not a great thing either. We know, and there's now that cohort which I think it was Richard was referring to, the UK cohort, showing that if you look at long-term outcomes to maternal uh, high levels of anxiety and depression in pregnancy, they're less good. And uh, very similar to the fathers, it's the same in the mothers. And just following on from that, we've been hearing a bit about kind of how the psychological treatment looks, talking a little bit about medications. I'm curious, from your perspective, Athena, what do you think most helped you? What did you experience as helpful in your own recovery? Um, Initially, um, it was the the traditional... um, I was on the SSRI. Um, as well as therapy from a psychologist. So they, those two were pivotal in the early stages. Uh, my recovery now is um, I've weaned off the medication and I basically exercise, eat healthy. I still continue to get some kind of counselling and that's only if I've got events that have been quite stressful. So and I lost my father a couple of months ago, so you know I uh, reintroduced myself to my psychologist and that was more of stress management. It wasn't that, you know, I am going through stress or I'm not dealing with it. It's basically um, an attempt to prevent anything 
from happening again. Um, last thing I want is another episode. Um, yeah, and the support, having the support people around me, my family, uh, friends, being social in some capacity, and more importantly, spend time with my son. You know, he's my life. He, you know, it took me seven years to get him, so... Um, and after all my experiences, he's a really great kid, and that's I'm not being biased. You know, he, he was actually, you know, was born quite healthy, 4.2 kilos, actually. Um, yeah, and he's, you know, quite bright, um, very social. So, you know, from everything that he experienced with me, he turned out all right so far. Um, yeah, so they've, they've been important to me. And, and, and to continue in my career, so... Uh, you know, the mental health peer work, that's actually, you know, for me, is like a, it's like a self-care thing. Um, it's not a job I get paid to do it. For me, it's giving something back, um, being able to, to work with other women, especially going through some kind of um, mental illness um, and being able to give them some kind of hope that recovery is possible. So I put a lot of factors into consideration of what, what is recovery for me, what will help me, um, and I'm taking more of that holistic approach. So, yeah, medication when I need it, therapy, exercise, healthy diet, social, family, all that combined. Fantastic. Well, what a great place to end on a message of hope and recovery and the importance of talking. So great for us to also be talking together about this really important topic. Please join me in thanking our wonderful Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.